Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. What do French fries, ice cream, and mac and cheese have in common? It's thought they were all brought to America by James Hemings, the first American to learn classic French cuisine. Born in Virginia in 1765, James and his siblings, including his sister, Sally Hemings, grew up enslaved. His mother was an enslaved woman named Elizabeth, and his father was their owner, John Wales, a wealthy planter, whose daughter Martha married founding father Thomas Jefferson in 1772. When Jefferson was appointed commerce minister to France in 1784, he decided to take the then 19-year-old Hemings with him to train as his personal chef. In Paris, the culinary capital of the world, Hemings was apprenticed to some of the finest chefs the city had to offer and quickly mastered the art of French cooking. Although still enslaved, he was made head chef at Jefferson's home on the Champs-Élysées, where he managed a team of white servants and kitchen staff, developed a new style of cooking that involved both French and American ingredients, and was even paid a wage, something that the vast amount of enslaved Americans would never experience. Having returned to the United States, Hemings continued to cook for Jefferson, and many of his culinary creations caught on, becoming classics until this day. Promised his freedom if he agreed to train another enslaved how to cook in his place, Hemings finally tasted freedom before he sadly passed away aged just 36. We all know what befell Sally Hemings, one of hundreds of Thomas Jefferson's slaves, raped and impregnated by him as a child and locked away for his personal pleasure for years, and actually the half-sister of Jefferson's wife. And now the tragic history as well of her brother James Hemings comes to horrifying light in the documentary James Hemings' Ghost in America's Kitchen and Hemings taken to Paris as a youth by Jefferson to learn French cuisine that the U.S. president intended to exploit at his dinner table to curry favor with politicians. And our guest on the show today during this holiday season, as a kind of Arts Express political Thanksgiving episode, is a chef inspired by Hemings in his own life, Ashbel McElvey, who narrates this film and shares his own investigative findings as to what may have actually befell Hemings in his disappearance and death as a young man. Was it murder? Along with plagiarism of his recipes by Jefferson's granddaughter. And regarding notions of you are what you eat, what food you may be consuming that Hemings originated but has never been credited for. First, some scenes from James Hemings' Ghost in America's Kitchen, then Chef Ashbell. James Hemings agrees to come to Monticello to cook. He has acquired a fabulous repertory of foods that really demand a much more tender style, and that's where the stew stove comes in. You could use that beautiful assemblage of pans that come back from Paris, what pans that really could not have withstood the intense heats that would have been in a hearth. He's got the ability to really saute, to really braise very quickly in a small pan. He could make a beautiful sauce using cream and butter that's just barely simmered. He could melt cheese. He could gently, gently poach fish till it was just absolutely translucent. It, it allows for very tender cooking and uh, very rich cooking. And that's what he would have learned in Paris and could then amend this beautiful, rich Virginia foundation of food. The lamb, the chickens, the, the local fish, the beautiful vegetables that was, that was always there. And the stew stove allowed him to do that. French fries, a firm ice cream, macaroni and cheese, whipped cream, it went from one slave kitchen around the world. My name is Ashbel McElvey. I know that there's a ghost in America's kitchen because he visited me. 
James Hemings. People don't know who James Hemings is because he was a slave and he did not fit the mold. Every Southern chef, every single one of them has the granddaddy, James Hemings. James Hemings was Thomas Jefferson's brother-in-law, but also his enslaved property. With the training that basically no American chef had at the time. I think he was murdered. When you're honest about this complicated history, all of a sudden, this American narrative makes more sense. James Hemings is America's culinary founding father. Hello, it's Shabash uh, Bell. Hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you so much. <laughs> Please tell our audience what foods they've likely eaten a lot of, but have no idea that they were their creations of forgotten slave and unknown culinary founding father, James Hemings. Well, the key uh, dish is the perennial favorite macaroni and cheese, um, and uh, followed very closely by a french fry mm -hmm. and, um, and firm french vanilla ice cream. Mm. Those are... Um, three of the top ones. And uh, if you've ever eaten lemon meringue pie, um, James Hemming introduced meringues to America also, as well as whipped cream. And, um, and, uh, and, and it's famous for the dessert of, of 1790. It's the assumption debit that reconciled um, bitter enemies, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, in New York City, he made a dessert of warm pastry stuffed with vanilla ice cream. And uh, he, the incredible um, musical Hamilton won uh, a Tony for the room where it happened. And James Hemming created the balm the culinary balm that made those bitter enemies agree mm. um, with significant uh, uh, historical uh, uh, links to American history. And what can you say about among the terrible events in Hemings' tragically short life was when Jefferson refused to communicate with him respectfully as a man and which led to the downward spiral of his life as a free man in the North and his tragic, untimely death. Well, I view that that's the proudest moment of James Hemings' life that I, in my view. He literally stood up to the, um, the most powerful man in his universe and refused to be called like he was when he was a slave. And uh, with Jefferson routinely did come here, come there, and um, and he stood up with his own dignity as a man, um, saying, "Address me and write me a few notes or a few lines of invitation." And Jefferson refused to do that because it was writing a letter to a black man, and um, it just shows literally the failings of Jefferson and the power of spirit and uh, uh, um, a moral compass that James Hemings had um, yeah. because he, after all, was free in Paris and could have stayed. Yeah. But he was going to America in the hopes of that Jefferson's word written, words written in the Constitution would become a reality. Mm -hmm. And that's been the hope of African Americans for many generations until we we uh, help to um, shape the Constitution into what we have today. And there have been a number of versions surrounding the death of Hemings, including suicide, drinking himself to death, and the one you've presented, murder. Please talk about those controversies and the conclusion that you've embraced and why. Well, um, people have to keep in mind that Water was not something that people drank. Average, everyday people didn't drink water at all. You drank ale. So everybody was, was, 
imagination. So that didn't happen. Here's what I think happened. When James Hemmings returned from Paris, he had the most exquisite clothes in the world. Boots handmade in Paris of the finest leather and the finest silks for his shirts and linens. And he was better dressed than any of the wealthy patron, wealthy, wealthy citizens of Baltimore. And I firmly believe that he was murdered for his possessions. And that uh, I hold out faith that a cache of his uh, recipes and writings are going to be found somewhere and, and end up on an antiques roadshow. Because clearly he was um, fluent in both English and French, both speaking and writing. And to have accomplished uh, becoming a French chef um, and taking over a kitchen, you had to write down um, recipes and techniques. And uh, that was the rigor um, for learning in, uh, in France where he did. And uh, so I know that there's a cast somewhere, and I, I feel it in my spirit. So mm -hmm. that uh, suicide didn't make any sense to me because yeah. everybody drank. You didn't drink water. It was all ale. You started out drinking ale in the morning with your breakfast, and you finished with your supper drinking ale. So that, uh, that drinking himself to death just doesn't fly. And what can you say about Jefferson's granddaughter plagiarizing Hemings' recipes in her own cookbook? And has that theft of Hemings' creations ever been rectified? No. And that is going to require um, an, a, a more investigative historian, culinary historian. I am not a culinary historian. I'm a nosy chef. <laughs> and I uh, ask very pointed questions. And I'm a big fan of Judy, uh, Judge Judy Scheinland. When it doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. Mm. And, uh, and that's how I just approach these questions and, um, and keep, a, you know, keep a keen view of what those enslaved people must have felt like. Mm. Um, because my own personal experience growing up in Jim Crow in South Carolina, going to schools segregated by law, I had a, a hint of what uh, the enslaved people um, faced with that, you know, modern iteration, iteration of uh, chattel slavery with the Jim Crow. And, uh, and sadly, those are vestiges that are being cheered on today in America. And, uh, and for me, I firmly believe that something that Nelson Mandela instigated once he got out of uh, prison, and it was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he was so right that you must have the truth, and then we must reconcile, because the pointing of fingers and retiring to our camp is not an option. We want this union to survive. We must sit at the same table and at least share a meal. Now, as we're entering the holiday season with this emphasis on food, especially Thanksgiving, were there contributions of Hemings in that regard? Well, it was not the... Uh, a holiday celebration when James Hemmings was, was alive. Thanksgiving was not celebrated in that way. Yeah. And um, he um, definitely would not have been doing anything but cooking basic, classic Virginia plantation food and things like uh, cured, um, cured lamb, for example. Mm -hmm. Which uh, they do, they used to do in Colonial Virginia, Virginia, curing a lot of lamb and mutton as basically ham, and, um, and I'm sure that one of those things would have been on the uh, growing.
And speaking of food, as a chef yourself, how would you advise people regarding the terrible inflation and food prices they're facing now? Well, I am, um, I, I think that there are so many ways, so many creative ways to cook inexpensive food. Um, you don't have to necessarily pick the main brand. Um, store brands are generally fantastic. And this is an opportunity to use fresh vegetables in hmm. farmer's markets. So there are ways to to be careful with your food budget and uh, and create some wonderful food. So it's an opportunity for Americans to, in particular, to stop buying so much processed food mm-hmm. because the processed food that's the expensive stuff and uh, and it it lacks all kinds of nutrition. So you're just throwing your money out the door. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, a proponent of vegetables um, and less meat and fish um, would suit many people. And in particular, one of my favorites is um, a corn pudding, which uh, is an incredible dish. I served it in my uh, restaurant in London, and people um, flock to the restaurant because um, they had never had anything of that kind of consistency. And um, it was very popular with uh, with women in particular. They'd order the corn pudding with a side salad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as a matter of fact, the new queen consort came to my restaurant in London, and that's what she had. So uh, it, uh, it is a dish that uh, I love, and uh, most Americans don't cook corn pudding. Don't make it. But it's a simple recipe um, that comes from Native Americans, and it is absolutely delicious. It's a great side dish when you don't want to do stuffing. And how would you say Hemmings has inspired you as a chef and to become a chef? Well, I grew up in a family that thought good food was a birthright. There were many, many incredible cooks and chefs in my family. And uh, they were the inspiration. And I now understand that their inspiration came from uh, people like James Hemmings. And, and what the, the real inspiration for me is that when, once I started digging, I realized that James Hemmings and Hercules Posey were foundational in bringing Virginia plantation cooking to an urban setting, Philadelphia. And that created the basis of fine dining in America. Mm. I was very surprised to uh, see that because, you know, all we hear about is soul food and, and all of this, and which, which tends to relegate anything to do with African Americans cooking food to offals and leftovers, when in fact, they created the finest dining in America. Hmm. And uh, the inspiration of James Hemings for me as a chef was his boldness and his, uh, his ability to adapt. Um, I was a student in France at 19. I went to France at 19, the same age that he went. And, uh, and I lived there for 10 years. And I can only imagine um, what he was feeling. So I, I walked around in his footsteps in Paris many times and felt very kind of imbued with his spirit. Mm. So he's, he, he's a lasting inspiration for me and for a lot of other uh, chefs uh, of, of any hue. And what could you say about how Hemings' talents were exploited by Thomas Jefferson for political gain? Well, it started in Paris. When James Hemings finished training at the Chateau Chantilly, and he and Jacques Dupin said it in the documentary so well, it took him eight years to learn what to achieve what James Hemings did in a year and a half. And that was to 
become a, a chef de cuisine in France. It was a rigorous system, but he apparently was very bright. And when he took over the kitchen at Jefferson's residence on the Champs-Élysées, he became uh, the master of the kitchen, supervising the staff of ten. And Jefferson started weaponizing his, his cuisine then because he was the darling of the Enlightenment. And he gave all of these incredible salons, all of which James Hemings, whose food was used um, to make Jefferson look good. And, um, and they were all English-speaking salons. He, because Jefferson never spoke fluent French. He could write it and he could read it eventually, but he never spoke French. And that was where the weaponization of the food started. And it, it's, um, it's, it's really surprising that James Hemings, who could have declared his freedom in France, he knew that if he did, it would have destroyed the reputation of Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and all the other members of the American delegation who literally hid the fact that they owned slaves in America. Mm. And if he had declared his freedom, that would have ruined the, the early credit of the, of the United States. You mean they didn't know over there in France that he was a slave? No, not at all. When I went to the Chateau Chautier, you know, I was doing research because the kitchen he trained in is still there. And uh, and I went to the archivist and talking with them, and they were like, well, some records were burned, so um, who exactly was James Hemming? And how do you know he was here? And I was like, well, we know he was here. <laughs> and, and I said he was the slave of Thomas Jefferson, and they went absolutely bonkers. They were like, no, 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 not here. Not here. No slaves in this house. And they went and retrieved the document um, where 20 years before James Hemings got to the Chateau Chantilly, the Duchess had adopted, um, who was the cousin to the King of France, adopted a young um, uh, black girl who had been left in France um, by the people that brought her in from the island. And she adopted her legally in the, in the French system and in the church. So they brought the document out, and part of the document said no enslaved people should, should be invited into this house. And, uh, and they pulled it out and said, no, 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 not here. And I was, and I said, oh, <laughs> he <had> in status, <laughs> I, clearly. And then when I did other research, um, uh, and literally... He inhabited a, a Paris where there were 5,000 free black people in Paris. So all living in the same neighborhood. So literally, he could, he could not have missed the fact that they were free because they went to the Admiralty Court and declared their freedom. That had to be common knowledge. And, uh, and the fact that he hid his status is monumental. And it's, um, I'm working on a new TV series, James Hemings in Paris, and it will not be a pretty representation of, of our founding fathers. I'm just finishing up the pilot, and, um, and we're looking to get a commission, actually. Oh. I've been approached by uh, French producers at Canal Plus, and I've been talking with the BBC about it and some American uh, production companies. Mm. But it, it, um, there's a lot of interest in it. And, um, and I'm uh, excited that Ghost in America's Kitchen, which is the first in a trilogy of films, and uh, the second is James Henry's in Paris, and the third is The Patriots Return to Slavery. Mm. Um, I decided to actually do it, do his life story this way because it's impossible to cram his, this amazing life that he led um, in uh, in one hour documentary. Oh yeah. yeah. So I absolutely.
his moral compass and his love of country and family and love of Virginia really brought him back here. And, um, and we're richer for the fact that he didn't stay in France because it would have ruined the credit of the United States had he declared his freedom in France. Jefferson and uh, Franklin uh, would have been pariahs overnight, literally pariahs, because the Enlightenment was was vehemently anti-slavery. So Jefferson was careful not to admit he owned 600 souls. And what would you hope audiences to understand about Hemings with this film? Well, with this film, I... I'm hoping that people understand that for nearly 240 years, he has been erased from American history. And he's been erased partly because he's still enslaved to the myth of Thomas Jefferson being a culinary founding father. Thomas Jefferson was only a connoisseur of great food, but it was James Hemings that put fine food in his mouth. That's what I want people to walk away with and to start to look at this amazing America in a new light. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Chef Ashbell, for calling into the show about James Hemings' Ghost in America's Kitchen, and I'll get the word out about this extraordinary story. Thank you, Perry, so much. I've, I've so enjoyed talking to you. Bye-bye. And James Hemings' Ghost in America's Kitchen is airing on Amazon. And next on Arts Express, with the world climate crisis dominating the news right now, where are people getting a great deal of that information from? Well, according to NASA climate scientist Bill Patsert, it's Hollywood. Patsert dissects what Hollywood gets right and wrong. suicide adhered to the Mayan calendar which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of this year this year this year what are the odds I thought we'd have more time he said that the government is building these ships so when do we let the people know our mission is to assure the continuity of our species. Wasn't it also decided the people have the right to fight for their lives? I'm Bill Patsert. I spent more than 50 years at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory studying climate change and global warming. Much of what the public really knows about climate change and global warming comes from Hollywood. Today, we're going to dissect a few films and see where Hollywood gets it right and wrong. Day after tomorrow, global warming has melted the polar ice caps. We do not act soon. It is our children and our grandchildren who will have to pay the price. But they got the science wrong. What we saw in New York City, the oceans rise. It's exceptionally photogenic, but the size is totally unrealistic. It's too immediate. Global warming gets you slowly. This instantaneous switch into a mini ice age over a few days, the time scale's all wrong. We're not cooling. 
We're warming. The scientist, played by Dennis Quaid, dramatically draws a line across the center of the United States. Everyone south of that line. It's not the way it happens. But there are a lot of things I liked about it. A couple of ironic things. One of them is mass migration out of the United States. And they are wading across the river illegally into Mexico. There will be mass migrations as we look into the 21st century, and particularly in the American Southwest. Now, one of the things they really got wrong is one of the least likely places in the world to have devastating tornadoes is Southern California. Day after tomorrow, they played for the camera, not for the science. Let's give it a C minus. Our next film is 2012. Massive solar eruption impacts the core of the Earth, setting off a geologic catastrophe in the crust, essentially destroying civilization. It's definitely a dud. Global warming has almost no impact on the Earth's crust. It's a surface manifestation. These are two different animals. San Andreas Fault is shifting. Here in California, one of the big forces of nature that hangs over all our heads here is the San Andreas Fault. It's moving, it's powerful, and potentially very destructive, but it's totally decoupled from climate change. On a popcorn scale, we're gonna give it an A plus, but on a science scale, it's a D minus. Interstellar really asks the core question. As population explodes, as we change our climate, as we devastate our ecosystems, what is the future of mankind on planet Earth? And it's interesting how they use the past as a metaphor for the future. Expanding droughts. You didn't expect this jerk that was giving you this food to turn on you like that and destroy you. Starvation on a mass scale. We ran out of food. The world needs farmers, good farmers. Nelson's torching his whole crop. They're saying it's the last harvest for okra ever. The thing that really gets you is not sea level rise, it's the lack of water and the lack of food due to overpopulation. But six billion people, just try to imagine that. And every last one of them trying to have it all. How does the human race deal with that? And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. There's not a planet in our solar system that can sustain life. Or any nearby solar system. Big question, great flick, an A+. Mad Max, although it paints a grim picture of a post-apocalyptic future. There's something very contemporary about it. I am your redeemer. It is by my hand you will rise from the ashes of this world. The fundamental resource, essentially, that sustains civilization, which is water, is being controlled by a megalomaniac who's misogynistic, totally lacking in empathy for the people that he rules. There is something really prophetic about Mad Max. We see the rise of dictators across the planet and resources become more and more limited. Most of the earth has turned into a desert. Now, we're seeing that on a smaller scale today. Do not, my friends, become addicted to water. It will take hold of you and you will resent its absence. I'm giving this movie an A-plus on many levels. Myself, I go back and look at this many, many times. I think the message from all these movies, we have to be careful who we vote for. We have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels and onto renewable energies. This is the home planet. There is no planet B. Thank you, BuzzFeed, for that climate scientist review of global warming movies. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, testing, one, two, three. Hello. My name is Polly Vandersma, and I'm a Girl Friday. Well, actually, I became a person Friday a couple years ago. I didn't change the job very much. Anyways, my new boss was a curator. Oh, she loved to talk about art things. I could never really 
I can never really talk to them about all the things I think about sometimes. And all the things I've seen. Patricia Rosema, and I'm inviting you to see my first film, I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. This is Patricia Rosema. Gosh, you know, sometimes I think my head is like a, a gas tank. You have to be really careful what you put into it, because it might just affect the whole system. I mean, isn't life the strangest thing you've ever seen? And now on the show, in the Arts Express Playhouse, a musical theater presentation, X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. About 58 years ago, Malcolm X was murdered, but his legacy has only grown in the ensuing years. In 1986, Anthony Davis, composer, and Tulani Davis, the playwright and poet, wrote an opera about Malcolm X called X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Although it did have a premiere at New York City Opera, it was never recorded commercially in full. Since then, the opera has been revised with the title libretto. The Boston Modern Orchestra Project has released the world premiere of a new recording of the opera, starring Devon Times as Malcolm X. Well, we're happy today with permission to bring you some selections from that recording. The opera follows Malcolm X's life from his early traumatic realization that his father, the Reverend Little, has been killed by a white mob on a streetcar up to Malcolm's final assassination at the Audubon Ballroom. In the selection we'll be playing for you, first you'll hear the overture, and then we'll pick up the opera at the point where Malcolm, after his release from prison and his conversion to Islam, becomes a rising star in Elijah Muhammad's organization with his powerful speeches. But in the week after President John F. Kennedy's assassination, Malcolm's comment to a reporter that the president's death was a case of, quote, the chickens coming home to roost, unquote, causes a huge outcry in the white press, much to Elijah Muhammad's dismay. Not wanting the undue negative attention, Muhammad makes his displeasure clear to Malcolm. One noteworthy and unusual element about the score is that it includes 10 musicians within the orchestra who are meant to improvise some of their parts each performance, as in a jazz rendition. What has changed since the 1986 production? Talani Davis writes, When we auditioned singers in the early 1980s, black singers commonly told us they made their living performing Porgy and Bess. Thomas Young had been in 13 Porgy productions when we hired him. Today, there is another, larger generation of talent, not just singers, of which there is a glorious profusion, but also of orchestra performers, conductors, designers, and ever so slowly, black directors hired in opera. The composers and librettists continue to emerge from various streams of American music, bringing musical and narrative innovations that enrich the sounds and stories of this most complex form of musical theater. You'll be hearing Devon Times as Malcolm X, Victor Robertson as Elijah Muhammad, the Odyssey Opera Chorus, and the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, known as BMOP, led by conductor Gil Rose. And now selections from X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. <laughs> Thank you. 
If we are going to be free, it will be done by you and me. And we won't turn the other cheek. We won't turn the other cheek to get our freedom. We are ready to die to get our freedom. We will use any means, whatever means necessary, to stand for themselves, to live for themselves, or keep catching hell. Equality, equality, justice. Black people 
down south sit in and redneck sick dogs on them. Burn their churches. Who are the lawbreakers? Who are the violent ones? Muslims don't expect anybody to give our people freedom. We want to stand up against racism. All black people. Together. Tragic events in Dallas. President Kennedy's assassination. America's climate of hate is coming back on itself. Not only are defenseless blacks killed, but now it has struck down. The chief of state that hate struck down Medgar Evers. That hate struck down Patrice Lamumba. In my view. It's a case of the chickens coming home to roost. The chickens come home to roost. Now Malcolm be so The messenger. The chickens come home to roost. I do. been listening to a selection from the opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, composed by Anthony Davis with libretto by Tulani Davis. Devon Tynes is featured as Malcolm X. The recording is released on BMOP slash sound and can be found at bmop.org. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, 
You can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.